the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bandied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that, um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And... What we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But... Until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or, or, or theocracy or, or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is um, 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control of society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians just used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But, yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly, an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. 
We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in not not consistently applied. Well, I think that those with Christianophobia they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable, and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others. Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot, experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can't pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. 
What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone study race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, 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 what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there are sins Christians have done historically concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not, are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming in and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented 
I told you about when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder... Um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, arts, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice. And we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... Um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to anti Christian bias. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I sat down the other day with a friend of church who recently had a new addition to the family, a new baby daughter, and of course the usual thrill and delight that any father demonstrates when he's got his first daughter. And as we were talking about what this meant now in becoming a father to a daughter and the challenges that uh, she would no doubt face growing up in the world that's filled with uh, so much sin and everything that we see on TV and on the Internet and so forth. He turned to me at one point in the conversation. He said, you know, Craig, he says, I think that I would feel better about this if I could just walk my daughter in the house, cut off the Internet and television until she's, say, 35, and then I would feel okay about this. Certainly, as he says that tongue-in-cheek, that might be a temptation. But all of us recognize that raising kids today, be they daughters or sons, 
in a world that is filled with so much sin and so much stuff that is available on the Internet, on the streets, texting, telephones, and, of course, television and entertainment and so forth, presents some huge challenges to parents who want to do all they can to properly train up a child and, in many respects, prepare them for what it means to become adults. Taking a look at this um, somewhat of a challenging topic is Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today, author of a number of best-selling books down through the years, of course, uh, including one of his latest, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. And uh, Dennis, as always, great to have you on the program. It's great to be with you too, Craig. I haven't been out in your direction in a long time. Let's talk a bit about um, the passport to purity, which is something I think is coming just in time for parents who really struggle with what they see going on in the world around them. And they say, you know, there's so many ways in which my son or my daughter has been being pulled in this direction or that direction. And it almost seems as if there's just no simple surefire way, short of my friend's recommendation to locking them in the house till they're 35, to protect them from all this. Craig, for 11 years, I taught a sixth grade Sunday school class. I had 550 11 and 12-year-olds go through my class. And by the time I finished teaching that that class, I was convinced that uh, the ages 10, 11, 12 provided a window of opportunity that most parents don't realize is there and don't seize the moment to drive a truckload of truth and boundaries and education into their lives for the very reason you're talking about. They're just around the corner from what I believe is the most perilous some of the most perilous years a human being faces on the planet, the teenage years. And I created a tool that was really the contents of what I taught those kids, and it's called Passport to Purity. And what it is is it's a a package of of CDs that a parent can play, and uh, in the process, uh, we guide the parent in how to have discussions with the father-son, mother-daughter, over a Friday night, Saturday, to prepare them for what they're going to face in adolescence. And uh, personally, uh, we've done a lot of good things at Family Life over the years. Our broadcast, you know, heard daily, 8.30 in the morning on uh, KFAX. Um, But this tool, Passport to Purity, has had 150,000 young people go through it. And I think it's one of the best things we've ever done, bar none. And, you know, Dennis, when we think about the challenges that young parents are facing, and I'm sure you hear this all the time from listeners who call in and write you um, from the broadcast who say, you know, boy, to sit down with my kids, uh, number one, when we were kids growing up, and, you know, for our our child's perspective, that seems like back in the Stone Ages, uh, many of these things weren't even discussed. I mean, I don't don't think I began dating with even any kind of cursory permission from Dad until 16, 17 years old. I mean, anything earlier than that, you're too young. So the kids seem to be growing up a lot faster, and then a lot of parents feel so overwhelmed because unlike what it was like when we grew up, we didn't have to deal with the Internet and sexting and texting and what goes on with uh, modern-day technology. And a lot of parents, I think, as a result, Dennis, feel so ill-equipped to address these critical topics that sometimes they make the big mistake of simply saying nothing at all or waiting until it's too late. And in the process, Craig, what they do is they let the world do it. Mm. See, when we as parents don't fulfill our ministry in the lives of our our children, and by the way, your children are not your youth pastor's responsibility. 
your children are your responsibility. God gave them to you. It is your ministry. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, since we've received this ministry, we do not lose heart. And I think what the culture is doing, Craig, is I think it's robbing parents of their courage. It convinces them they're not experts. They don't know what they're doing. They're ill-equipped, as you said. And what we've sought to do is put together a tool that makes the parent look like a hero. Because this is, this is a cool tool. So what you're really doing then here, Dennis, with the passport to purity is you're blowing some really big misconceptions out of the water. To begin with the idea that some parents think that this is an option to educate or not to educate on the topic of purity and, and sexuality and so forth. Oh, believe me, they will get educated. The question is, is it going to be done within the context of God's design for relationships, or is it going to be done outside of the home, outside of the church, by the modern culture and media? Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, uh, near, near the end of that chapter, in the end of the book of Romans, this statement. He said, he's speaking like a parent. He said, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in, of what is evil. Now, if you could capture the assignment of a parent, the assignment of a parent is to train their children in wisdom, which comes from God, skill in everyday living according to the Scriptures, be wise in what is good, and to protect your children from evil, to be innocent. So they don't arrive in marriage carrying luggage from all the mistakes that they've made being allowed to go their own way all the way through adolescence. And, and even if you do this with excellence, you still may not prevent that because they've got a choice. But to not engage and, and, and not have the discussion, I think what Passport to Purity does that is so effective is it gives the parent and the, the young person, the 10, 11, 12-year-old, a common vocabulary, a common lexicon of terms and of topics that can be discussed, not just in this Friday night, Saturday experience, uh, mother, daughter, father, son, one time, but can be talked about then, followed up on the next week, the next month, and then for the next uh, decade of their lives as they go through adolescence. And if there's ever been a time when young people needed parents to be engaged in their lives, it's when they're going through the adolescent years before they reach adulthood and maturity. Is this a tool that would have made life even easier for you and Barbara had this been available to you when you were raising your kids? Oh, absolutely. The reason I taught the, the sixth grade Sunday school class is because I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to use the sixth grade Sunday school class to teach my kids. And by the time you teach something 11 times, the kids don't realize it, but they've probably taught you more as a parent than you've taught them. <laughs> Very true. And, and what I said was, I want to put this, what I learned over 11 years of teaching this class, the object lessons, how we went about it, how we had fun doing it, very entertaining style, music, drama, all kinds of fun surprises along the way, embarrassing moments where we talk about, now you're turning red, because we're talking about the most intimate of life issues. We had fun doing it, and the kids enjoyed it in the process. It's interesting, uh, Craig, I've got... Uh, soon to have 19 grandkids. Barbara and I are very young, but our our kids have not been bashful about being fruitful and multiplying, okay? <laughs> but we're now seeing some of my grandkids go through this. And it is really cool to think 
that here is a, a, a 10, 11, 12-year-old who is being coached around the major traps he or she is going to face multiple times through adolescence and have a game plan and hopefully a high enough standard on the front end that they'll be able to stay out of the traps and be innocent of what is evil. And, you know, when you think about this, it comes down to issues of really helping kids to understand that all along the way in life, they are going to be confronted with choices. The question is, ultimately, are they going to be equipped to have the right answer, the right decision-making process to make the right choices? And I guess that's where so often today, Dennis, modern education and secular society fails our kids because a lot of them are out there with an agenda that tries to present up the notion that there aren't any choices, that, for example, if a young lady finds herself in a crisis pregnancy situation, that the only choice she has is to abort that child, that there are no options. This, in fact, really helps to educate the children then from a very early age on this topic to understand that they've got choices in life. I, 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 I don't have this documented, but I recently heard about a, a major publisher that had done some research among pastors. And um, the number one concern these pastors had about the people going to their church was that there's a generation of young men and women getting married, having kids, forming their own families, and, and biblically, they don't have those convictions in place. Mm. And what, what we've attempted to do here is not just have a fun experience with a father, son, mother, daughter, but to to take them to the Scripture and let them see, you know what, the Bible, the Bible is fun. The Bible is relevant. The Bible saves you from death. It saves you from pain. It saves you from shame, from guilt. And if you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you build your life around right choices, which is wisdom and not foolishness, you're going to, to not only experience adolescence on a whole different level, you're going to move into adulthood, kind of knowing where you're going and where you base your life upon. And I think it's every parent's desire that their son or daughter be equipped as they leave their home when they're 18, 19, 20, whenever it is, to be able to live life and live it skillfully. Dennis Rainey, my guest today on this edition of Lifeline. The program, of course, Family Life Today, comes your way every weekday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. Dennis, of course, when he pulls out the pictures of the grandkids, it's not just a few photographs in a wallet. There's a whole PowerPoint presentation. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, a look at Passport to Purity, and by the way, how this wonderful resource can be available to you and your family as our conversation with Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest. You recognize his voice certainly as host of Family Life Today. Heard weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. He's Dennis Rainey. And Dennis has joined us today to talk about a wonderful resource that he's making available through Family Life Today. And you can get more details, by the way, on the web by going to familylife.com. That's familylife.com. This new resource is called Passport to Purity. 
that can help you better equip your child for what they're going to face in life, particularly when we talk about many of the issues related to modern-day sexuality and all that that means. And you know what's interesting, Dennis? A lot of parents think that they are singular in the role of raising up a child or influencing a child. But I guess the real reality is that when it comes to child-rearing, there are some other influences taking place in there as well friendships, their peers, the people that they associate with, the influences that they're going to be subjected to in modern-day culture and media. You know, Craig, we raised six children through adolescence. Nothing challenged my leadership like raising kids through adolescence. It was all hands on deck every day. But the biggest challenge, and this is going to sound terribly hypocritical, but it was Christian peers kids that our kids went to church with, who they looked up to, but who um, would encourage our children to disobey us, or or call us fuddy-duddies, or out to lunch. And I think by the time I finished raising, Barbara and I finished raising our six, we we both knew that we had to know what was going on in our kids' lives around peer pressure. Who their, who their friends were, where they came from, and even if they went to church with our kids, did not guarantee that they were going to give them sound advice. So this notion that somehow, well, if we send our child to a, a Christian school, for example, and certainly <laughs> it means nothing from a pejorative sense whatsoever, but the fact of the matter is you never know how another parent is training up their child or the kind of values that they're instilling in them And so as a result, it really comes back to building that firm, solid foundation with your son or daughter as early on as possible. You know, one of the most revealing uh, times as we raised each of our six into adolescence came in junior high and high school. It was, as you just said, Craig, it was as our kids' friends moved into adolescence with them, we begin to see what the true values were and how they got played out in everyday life in these peers. And what looked like a Christian family with Christian teaching, and you you would think with high standards, the junior high years, the high school years, revealed, hey, wait a second, you know what? It may have had the appearance of going to church, teaching about Christ, but the young person either didn't get it or the parents didn't teach it because the way they were living was in a different direction. Dennis, do sometimes the parents kind of think, and and falsely so, that this will all sort of take care of itself? In other words, I might feel bashful or awkward about addressing the issue of um, sexuality with my daughter, say. So I assume that, well, this will be covered in Sunday school, and they'll get some education because, after all, we're, we're making the sacrifice to send the kids to a private school. Those topics will be addressed there, and of course, they're good kids, and we take them to school and to church uh, every week, and so we really don't have to worry about this. It'll all take care of itself. Is that is that a, a do you find in your experience that is a frequent misperception? I think so, and I think there's one other thing I'd add to it. I think a lot of parents are afraid to get into the conversation with their kids about sex because they're afraid their kids are going to say, hey, mom, dad, what'd you do? There it is. And that's the reality I think that parents need to come to grips with, that as you say, for our generation, uh, getting access to a lot of this meant heading down to the, you know, the ugly, seedy side of town that nobody ever went into. Uh, today, you don't have to even leave the convenience and privacy of your own home. It finds you. And I guess in the, in the, in the final analysis, Dennis... Parents have to understand, look, this is going to find your kids one way or another. The question is, when it does, 
Will they be ready with an answer? Will they be equipped with the kind of tools, skills, and moral and spiritual foundation that they need to make the right choices? No more valuable a gift that you could give to your son or daughter at a time when they need it the most than the passport to purity. Again, more information online at FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com. Grandma, Grandpa, don't wait for your son and daughter to go out and pick up a copy. Do something right now. Be proactive to protect your grandkids. Go online and order it today. Get more information. FamilyLife.com. The Passport to purity. Dennis, as always, we sure appreciate the time, my friend. And appreciate you, Craig, and love the listeners of KFAX in the Bay Area, and look forward to seeing you someday. Look forward to you getting away from the heat and come on out here and join us in the the natural air conditioning of the Bay Area fog. (laughs) There's Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today, the broadcast weekday mornings at 8.30 right here on KFAX. Check it out. Invite a friend to listen and check out, too, more information on the Passport to Purity. Simply log on to FamilyLife.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.